Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest is Ruby Warrington. Ruby has staked out ground in a number of areas. She's the founder of something called The Numinous, which you're going to hear more about in this conversation. She's also a leading figure in what's come to be known as the Sober Curious Movement, which we're going to talk about in the bonus portion of the conversation. She's here mainly today to talk about her new book, Women Without Kids, The Revolutionary Rise of an Unsung Sisterhood. Now, this is a topic I've been involved with a lot as a writer and as an editor, but I don't think it's really ever been covered on this podcast. So Ruby and I talk about the rise in women and men who are childless, either by choice or circumstance. We talk about whether there is a population crisis, and if so, which direction it's going in. We talk about what factors are perhaps involved in a person not wanting to be a parent. She talks about her own story, and we have actually a lot in common in that regard. As is often the case with this subject, I have to say that even if you are not interested in this topic per se, even if it's never occurred to you that anybody would not want to be a parent, I think you're going to find this really interesting because really when we talk about this stuff, we're talking less about this particular decision, but just how to live your life and what constitutes a satisfying life, how we want to live, how we want to die. It's really a rich topic. So I encourage you to stick around and listen to this conversation. I think this is an extraordinary conversation, actually. And uh, Ruby stays over time to talk about something entirely different. Are you ready for this? Astrology. We talk about astrology. And actually, I'll just leave it at that. I never thought I would talk about astrology for a bonus portion or any portion on this podcast, but we do. And um, there's a lot to learn. For instance, did you know that the United States itself has a birth chart? Places have a birth chart. So you can learn about that. We also talk about the sober curious movement. So there's something for everyone in the uh, bonus portion. You can go to my Substack if you want to hear that part. In the meantime, here is the main part of my conversation with Ruby Warrington. Ruby Warrington, welcome to The Unspeakable. Megan, thanks for having me. You have been prominent in the wellness space, as we call it, uh, very much associated with the so-called sober curious movement. I believe you coined the term sober curious. Now you've written a book about the ultimate sobriety, choosing not to have kids. Uh, Just abstain, (laughs) the ultimate form of abstinence. Um, How did this subject come about for you? It's interesting that you frame it as the ultimate form of abstinence. I just thought of that now as I was speaking, so don't hold me to it. Yeah, maybe we can kind of dig into what we're what we're escaping into when we have children. Um, um, how did this come about? I mean, this has been an ever-present topic in my life. I knew from age about five years old that, well, it wasn't that I, I knew I wouldn't be a mother, but I knew there were plenty of other things that I planned to do with my life. Um than have children. And then that kind of really intensified for me in my 20s and 30s. I was working as a magazine journalist in London. And it was around the time that, you know, people were coupling up and getting married. And the question, so when are you going to have kids, is was the next sort of natural question to arise. And everybody started having children and I didn't. And it became very apparent that I was not planning to do this thing that everybody 
seemed predestined to do. And so I was asked to write about the subject by several magazine editors in the UK at the time. And so, yes, it has, it's sort of always been a part of my identity, I suppose, in the world and also internally, sort of how, something I've known about myself. But in terms of this book, I actually, it hadn't necessarily, I'd been comfortable enough in my, my decision, in my childlessness, not to feel the need to really broadcast it beyond those articles that I was asked to write. But it was entering my sort of early to mid 40s and looking ahead to menopause that I found myself actually getting quite excited about what might come on the other side of menopause, you know? Wow. Released from the sort of monthly hormonal roller coaster of menstruation. And I realized within that that I had not only zero regrets about not having become a mother, but that I, I had no desire. There was no kind of panic button pressed in my uterus at that point as sort of, oh dear, you didn't do this thing you were supposed to do. Get on it, which I've seen amongst you know, friends and colleagues kind of reaching that point, sort of early 40s being, oh, shit, yeah, I need to do that now. And I had experienced neither of those things. And it made me realize that all of the, any, any of the self-doubt that I had felt, any of the questioning that I had done, and all of the projections from other people about my child-free status had sort of been in vain at best and also actually quite detrimental and quite obnoxious or just arrogant, I suppose, on the part of other people, particularly who thought that it was strange or odd or that I would regret it or that I would miss out if I didn't do this thing. And so I wanted to, yeah, A, sort of offer something back potentially to younger generations coming through who were questioning whether they wanted to become mothers and facing some of those same sort of projections from from other people. But then I then I kind of zoomed out and, and sort of turned my journalistic lens to the subject and noticed that actually, you know, the birth rate has been in steep and steady decline for the best part of the past century and going back further. And that we, we weren't really talking about why that was, you know, um, or what that would really mean for society going forward. I mean, yes, we have plenty of, you know, scaremongering articles about the aging population and aging economy, economy especially. Yeah, people are really worried about this People are really now. worried about it. But what I suppose I wanted to acknowledge was that that unstoppable demographic shift, which will completely reshape society and sort of is already beginning to in some ways, is the result of millions and millions of choices on the part of individual women, often very conflicted choices, often very fraught choices, often choices that come laden with a lot of judgment, a lot of prejudice from the outside. And so, yeah, I was just really interested then in getting into the grit and the meat of what was driving these choices. You know, why, what was really, what was driving these, this drop off in the birth rate mm-hmm. through the lens of kind of these individual choices that women are making. So that's kind of where, why I decided it was something I wanted to write about now. But yeah, it's been... <laughs> It's been challenging. It's been challenging. And I think naive, naively going into it, I didn't quite realize what a huge subject I was taking on. I, I love hearing this framing because, as you know, I've also written about this subject. And mm. uh, I think a lot of my listeners know that I edited uh, an anthology of essays by writers who had chosen not to have children. And it came out in 2015. And I know you and I have talked about this. 
I had wanted to do a project like that for years and years and was always told by people in publishing and in media that there was absolutely no audience for it. It was just a tiny, tiny niche kind of interest. And I kept saying, no, no, that's not true. Like even people who have kids are interested in this. Like they want to know why somebody wouldn't want to have kids or a lot of people who are, you know, parents and love their children are still conflicted about this in some ways. So it's a, you're right that it's a huge topic. I guess, God, I'm not even sure where to start. I, in listening to you, I'm thinking of a lot of discussions that I'm hearing lately about this idea that a lot of women, and let's just, for the moment, let's just frame this in terms of women. Although mm. I am, I always want to kind of not forget about men in the mix mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. I think that that's also really, really complicated and that men mm. do have pretty intense feelings about this. But you know, we hear a lot about how there's a mating crisis. And so that a lot of women who are childless, it's actually not by choice. And that just the the kind of particular dynamics of the women's movement and of the economy and just of kind of society, the way it's evolving, have made it impossible or much more difficult for people to pair up and become parents. And I know that's, you're focusing on women who have made this choice deliberately, but I wonder, as you observe these conversations, I wonder if you have feelings about that particular narrative. Well, first of all, I'd like to say thank you for Selfish, Shallow, Self-Absorbed. That was a revelatory book. It was so comforting <laughs> to find a book, finally, that gave, even helped me to kind of understand my own decisions around my procreative potential. And I'm so glad that you pushed through and managed to get that published. Um, <laughs> even with that title, which was uh, which, I which was a joke. <laughs> yeah, I, people love it. It's a tongue twister, but uh, other is. than that, it's, it's a good title. It's Perfect. Anyway, I loved that book. And I'm, I was thinking actually before, you know, planning for preparing for this call, you must have been writing it in 2013, 2014. And that's, you know, marking a, a decade, I suppose, that you were really diving into that. And I do think the conversation has evolved quite a lot during that time period for multiple reasons. But in terms of, I think what you're describing is the cohort who would, might describe themselves as childless by circumstance. They would like to have children, but for whatever reason, it's not possible. And not because necessarily they have experienced fertility issues, but more likely so they haven't been able to find a suitable co-parent. They haven't reached a place in their career where they feel they're established enough to be able to take the time out that it requires to dedicate oneself to raising a child Um, or just kind of, you know, financial issues in general. There are also what I kind of term, but don't belabor um, the title, (laughs) Childless by Climate Change, you know, people who are very concerned about the climate and the future of the planet and what kind of a world we're bringing more humans into. So all of these, I think, might sort of be categorized as childless by circumstance. And there is research, I think, that shows, and it's slightly outdated research, it's about 10 years old at this point, that shows that rough of people who don't have children, which by the way is 50% of women in the United States at this point, 50% of women age, 50%, but aged like 18 to 70. Okay. This is always hard to measure though, right? Because if you're (laughs) 18, yeah. Exactly. Many of those, many of those may go on to have children, but, um, but, um, so I think that the, the research that I sort of found on this was that around 10% are childless by choice. It's a conscious decision, something they just don't want to do. 
Um, 10% are childless due to fertility issues. And then the other 80% are what would be described as childless by circumstance. But I also sort of make the point in the book that sometimes it can be quite hard to draw the line or really sort of pass exactly where choices end and circumstances begin, you know? The choices that we're able to make often depend on our circumstances and then the choices that we do make go on to inform our circumstances going forward. So for example, choosing to live in a city like New York because it's where the best career opportunities are, it's an exciting cosmopolitan city that you want to be a part of, well, your rent is going to be a lot higher and it possibly will be harder to meet a co-parent. And so that choice is leading to circumstances that are going to make it harder for you to become a parent if that's something you want. So yeah, that childless by circumstance is a really interesting kind of gray area, which, yeah, yeah. this, and this relates to, you know, I, I, another gray area I talk about in the book is this concept of what I've called the motherhood spectrum, that rather than motherhood being every woman's, you know, rightful, natural role, and in fact, biological imperative any one individual's desire and aptitude for parenthood will exist on a spectrum depending on the circumstances that are influencing and informing their feelings and their decisions around whether they want to procreate or whether they're able to procreate. That's a great way of looking at it. Did you come up with that after having talked to a lot of people? Like what kind of reporting uh, and interviewing did you do in this book? I know you talk about a lot about your own story and I want to yeah. hear about that, but how much of this was a reporting project? I feel like because this is, has always been part of who I am, it's a conversation I've been having with my friends for my whole life. <laughs> so among my immediate sort of circles of, of friends and colleagues, it's a conversation that I've just had a lot with people. In terms of reporting this book specifically, because I was come interested in coming at it from quite an anthropological standpoint, um, I really gravitated towards interviewing psychologists, social scientists, you know, people who are people who were sort of studying the population and and why we are the way we are, evolutionary biologists, et cetera, et cetera. I recorded all those interviews, which exist as a Women Without Kids podcast series as well, because they were so rich and fascinating. But in terms of, and it's interesting, I I'd sort of shied away from interviewing and reporting on the stories of lots and lots of childless and child-free women, partly because I'm not particularly interested in reading those stories. <laughs> I'm more interested in the really deep why, you know, what are the what are the social and cultural factors that are informing our choices rather than reading about individuals' stories. There's also, I have to say, um, the month, I think the month that I signed my deal um, for the book, there was a big piece in the New York Times about an organization called We Are Child Free, um, which has been founded by a British photographer who's based in Berlin. And she was very much focusing on telling the stories of child-free women. Um, so I sort of felt like that was, she was doing a really good job with that. Um, and I was, like I said, just really interested in getting into the nitty gritty of what's informing our procreative outcomes, particularly at this point in our kind of evolution as a womankind, you know, and that I wanted to keep the storytelling piece to be more memoirish. And that was partly selfishly, I suppose. I was just really grateful to have the opportunity to dig really deep into my own stuff, you know, on the page, because I find that can be very cathartic and illuminating. And it was 
in all sorts of uncomfortable ways. But I also, to, to sort of to broaden out the influences in, that I was kind of drawing on in terms of the research, I did also create an online survey, which I sent out to my existing audience on kind of social media and newsletter and stuff. And I think about 200 people have responded to that. And it was asking some very wide-ranging and quite deep and personal questions. And people just, oh, wow, people, people wrote essays in response. It was kind of amazing. What were the questions? And tell oh, me some of um, the answers. How did you feel about your relationship with your mother? Did this impact how you feel about Oh, yeah, mother? that's, come on, These Ruby, sorts of that's things. irrelevant. Come on, <laughs> don't waste our time. <laughs> have, you, have you done any, have you had any therapy around not being a parent? What are other people's projections about your child-free status? What do you think of women who don't have kids? How do you perceive them? These sorts of things. So quite wide-ranging, but people really, really went into quite detail. And I got several responses, emails back from people saying, thank you. This was so useful to actually respond to these questions. So um, I toyed with the idea of making that questionnaire available. It's not currently. I might. But um, so I drew on... I drew on that too, more just this kind of ambient kind of background noise. And I pulled out choice quotes that I've included throughout the book. But yeah, researching it, I mean, it, <laughs> at times it felt like I was really, you know, attempting a PhD on the subject. <laughs> well, what kinds of things were people telling you? What, what stays in your mind? I think the, the family dysfunction piece really stood out as quite a through line amongst many of the responses, actually. And that's that was gratifying in the sense that I'd always had a feeling that the family in which one was raised and the dynamics of one's family of origin could not help but inform how one feels about recreating family or family how, how one feels about family in general. And that was definitely very prevalent in a lot of the responses, ranging from my mother was a completely selfless mother and dedicated herself to our, us children and I didn't want that level of self-sacrifice to um, my mother didn't want to be a mother. And, you know, I really got the feeling she didn't even like me very much. And I just wanted nothing to do with it, you know, and sort of everything in between. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> isn't really that amazing? fascinating stuff. Mm. Exactly. Because I think that people assume, oh, you must have had a terrible childhood and mm. this is why. But at the same time, there are a lot of people who have those kinds of childhoods and that makes them all the more inclined to have a family of their own. They want to right. kind of correct for the situation. So exactly. you can respond in either direction. Exactly. Which again, comes very much down to personality, the opportunities you've had in terms of building a different kind of life for yourself. I mean, all the different factors that might place someone on less, less at the kind of affirmative yes end of the motherhood spectrum. You know, it's a, I suppose the point I'm making with the motherhood spectrum concept is that this is incredibly individualistic rather than it being every woman's rightful natural path, you know, which has been the narrative for pretty much ever until relatively recently, you know? Yeah. And how recently, like what kind of sense do you get like 20 years, 30 years, less than that even? Well, I mean, I think that the late 1960s, 1970s were kind of a turning point a tipping point maybe in terms of legal effective birth control and legal safe abortion being made more widely available. It's certainly, you know, those developments certainly put the 
choice on the table, <laughs> you know, which hadn't necessarily been a choice that had felt like it was available to a majority of people up until that point. Although records will, the record will show there have been women without kids throughout history. You know, women have always sought abortions. Women have always sought mm. ways to control their reproductive cycles you know, the pull-out method has been popular throughout millennia. <laughs> so, That's why we're all here. So, uh, right, exactly. So, yeah, there have always been women without kids, but I think, I do, I do think the advances of second-wave feminism particularly really kind of tipped us into a new era in terms of this becoming a choice versus a biological imperative. Right. And speaking of second-wave feminism, did you find that people were talking about just this kind of the way that the job description of motherhood has been just kind of ratcheted up slowly over the years, because this is one thing that comes up a lot. Like it used to be, you would have a bunch of kids and they helped out on the farm or they just kind of, you turned them out loose on the, on the street, you know, go play and then come, come in when it's time for dinner kind of thing. And, you know, I've made this point many times that I don't think it's any accident that when white, especially middle-class women started going back into the workplace in the 1980, early 1980s, late 1970s, that's when the job of motherhood became sort of professionalized. You, It wasn't enough just to like have your kids stay with grandma or even stay by themselves. You had to be supervising them all the time. You had to be engaging with, you know, it, educational play. The whole child abduction hysteria started in the in the late 80s. So that was a little mm. bit later. But were people sort of just talking about how it's a lot harder to be a mother than it used to be? Or at least it just is a lot more demanding than it once was? Definitely. I don't, I didn't necessarily, I don't, I don't recall many people specifically articulating it that way. But I think just the, I just can't imagine how I would do it all. That sort of sentiment arose fairly often. And I think, you know, it's it's not exactly news that having it all is a myth and that it's really, really hard to be a mother and to, to kind of like have a, let's say, a big career, you know, that takes a lot of your focus <laughs> uh, and attention. Careful what you say. That's just your <laughs> internalized misogyny there. Right. You see? Right. And, you know, I know make the point, there are so many women who do an amazing job of that. And yes. they have ton of resources, usually resources in terms of finance, in terms of support from a wider family network, but also resources just in terms of the right personality for it. You know, exactly. Some people just Exa have a this bigger is, capacity for that than others. Exactly. People do not point this out enough. There are people who are able to have a bunch of kids and have a big career. And I mean, maybe they do have a bunch of nannies, but occasionally they don't. Right. And right. they just happen they to have a temperament that yes. they can figure this out. Exactly. And or they just, you know, they just to them. love being around people all the time. They have bigger natural reserves of energy. They take, yeah. they're more resilient to stress. Like these are personality factors, which absolutely play a huge part in that. I do. I was thinking this, this morning, I was just reflecting on the fact, oh, that's it. I'm reading a book. I think it's called The Rabbit Hutch. It's by Tess Gunty. Have you heard about that book? No. I love kind of quite dark, twisted novels. That's my preferred kind of reading. <laughs> anyway, there's a character who's just referred to as the mother <laughs> and the mother is in the depths of sort of a postpartum depression. And she's sort of reflecting on how nobody tells, she's like, 
she, I think that the, this isn't this is paraphrasing, but it's like you know, pregnancy, birthing, and postpartum, like three stages of a horror movie that nobody lets you watch until you have to live it. And it's just like, <laughs> whoa. <laughs> but I do think that women, particularly millennial women, having been emboldened to talk about the quote unquote realities of motherhood, the stress, the 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 boredom, the relentlessness, the lack of personal space, it's got to be putting people off, right? <laughs> and I'm not saying, hey, hey, moms just shut up and suck it up. But I do think that's probably playing a role in people going, hmm, okay, do I, do I actually Am I ready for that? Do I want to already embark on that, you know? Yeah. And at the same time, a lot of people who do have children will say, hey, you're kind of being sold a, a pretty negative view of this. I, I've heard a lot of parents right. say, yeah, all this stuff is incredibly, there's a lot of drudgery and there there is a lot of stuff that they don't tell you. But at the same time, there's this incredible value and fulfillment and really sort of ineffable kind of yes. uh, joy that comes out of this. So I, I, you know, as much as I'm on the side of we need to be honest about how unpleasant this is, I do think it's easy for the whole thing to kind of be cast in an extremely negative light. Absolutely. And it feels to me, if anything, hopefully it's more of a balancing because for so long, what we heard was, oh, but one smile makes it all worthwhile, <laughs> you know, and it's like really all of it. And One, I think yeah. that um, this again is again it points back to the fact that some people are just going to be more suited to the the suffering, let's say, of parenthood. Like if we can take as a given that human being human comes with some degree of suffering, there are certain kinds of suffering that are specific to parenthood that some people are just going to have an easier time with than others, you know? And the people who are broadcasting only the negatives are probably maybe just less suited to parenthood. I don't know if that sounds really mean. Oh, wow. But, um, yeah. 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 And again, the idea of selfishness, I'm curious if people in your survey reflected on that because this is what I have said many, many times. Like the, the standard line is, oh, people who don't want to have children are selfish. And my take is, well, it's actually selfish to have children when you know that you're not up for the job. It's, you know, the the ultimate way of paying respect to parents and the institution of parenthood is to know that it's a really difficult and important job and people who don't want to do that job should not do it. Mm. <laughs> right? So mm -hmm. it's actually it's it's selfish to to do something that you know you're not going to enjoy right so well, it's, self, it's selfish in terms of bringing a child a human being into the world who's going to bear the brunt of you not enjoying yeah i, I raising shouldn't them. say not enjoy yeah sorry that was that was putting it wrong I, lots, lots of stuff we don't enjoy but yeah so did people like um talk about how they sort of wrestled with this notion of of selfishness that this was haunting them or anything like that no, not necessarily. I think if anything, there was more of a, well, isn't it equally selfish to have a child just because you think it'll make you happy and fulfilled <laughs> to be a parent? Isn't that a sort of a selfish instinct too? If having a child is about fulfilling some personal desire for a certain degree of, you know, to experience a certain kind of love or to tick certain boxes in terms of acceptability. And isn't that sort of selfish too, if you're, if you're bringing a child into the world for, for reasons of personal satisfaction and fulfillment? 
of a dream, you know? People kind of were push, pushing back with that, I suppose. I'll tell you where I've come to with the selfish thing. Um, I sort of, I can't remember at what point this dawned on me, but I did, I started to wonder if the root of that self, well, I, I think the root of the selfish thing often is envy on the part of people who see people just enjoying the freedom and the, the quietude of non-parenthood. And there's some of some envies there sometimes, but I actually think there's something a bit deeper, which is more like how selfish not to give the gift of life to another being, how selfish to hoard life for yourself and not pay that forward to another, not to not give another being the opportunity to, to live, you know, if you want to get a bit deep with it. But, um, I could, I could almost relate to this being a, to, to, to non, non-parenthood being selfish for that reason, actually, it does sort of feel a bit selfish to hoard life for myself. Yeah. I don't know what you think about that one. <laughs> well, I can go to some really dark places here because, mm. yeah. you know, you could also look at it like, well, I mean, I had this conversation with Sarah Hader on, on my other podcast recently, like, you know, does anyone really need to exist? Like, do do any of us really need to be here? I mean, that's a much deeper I loved that conversation and I love love that you guys went there because I went there many times writing this book. As you can imagine, I mind a deeply misanthropic kind of streak whilst writing it as well. Like really, what is the point of being alive? Oh my goodness. And the other thing about like, you know, is passing on the gift of life. You have to believe that life is worth passing on. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think there's a difference between w- once you're here, of course you want to be here, most of us, hopefully. Like we want to we're glad to be alive and to have our lives and and you do you make the most of it. But this question of like does anybody really need to to be does any one given person really need to be on this earth? Uh no, I don't think that you could say that. But anyway, th- this is going in places that I think maybe we don't need to go. <laughs> We've been talking I, for half an hour. Maybe we'll get there. Yeah, yeah, again yeah. Later. <laughs> but I mean, but because I'm thinking, uh, you know, because people who, if Sarah is listening to this, she's going to be rolling her eyes and saying, okay, you guys, we're, there's a massive population crisis and there's going to be nobody to take care <laughs> of uh, mm. the old people and look at mm-hmm. what's happening in Japan. And we're all mm-hmm. going to go that rate. And, you know, Sarah would say to me, like on an individual basis, it's okay. Like she she would basically say, okay, Megan, I'm not going to blame you personally, but if everyone was like you, we'd really be in trouble. And luckily not every, no one's like you. Luckily you're, you're a weirdo. So <laughs> they, every, we would be in trouble for lots of reasons <laughs> and not just that one. Right. Well, there are that, then of course there are other people who say we're in the midst of an overpopulation crisis. Well, and I, the planet can't yeah. continue to support, you know, can't support us, the human race continuing to populate at the rate that we have been. I know. I think there's some debate on that. I I, yes. need to, I I actually need to get somebody on the podcast to talk about that because the whole sort of population bomb, Paul Ehrlich. Yes. Uh, I think it was too early. Argument. Yeah, time. he was ahead of his, ahead time of his time and apparently not quite, it wasn't quite as uh, dire as that. Well, yeah. So Ruby, tell us a little bit about, about your story. Like how did you kind of come to this realization about yourself? What kind of family did you grow up in? What, what sort of informed your values around all this? Um, I think first and foremost, like I touched on, I've always just, I've always really valued having 
a life of the mind. And this is not to say that there aren't plenty of mothers who, you know, live in the world of ideas and, you know, have that sort of a, a life and a and a career and those kinds of interests. But for me, that's always sort of been the priority, I suppose. And there's a point in the book where I make where I make the point that for a woman to prioritize a life of the mind over family life, she will always be seen as heartless and cold, you know? Um, so mm. that's something I've kind of is that grappled and, and with. I mean, in every, I mean, because the thing is, most people do become parents, right? Mm. So this is the thing, like when I did my my anthology, like people say, well, these are all writers, so they mm. don't really count. Like yes. writers are, are a little bit different. But <laughs> the fact is that most writers do range. have children. Most people mm. have children most and people, people have who children. are writers, most of them do have kids. So mm-hmm. yeah, I I mean, I think that there are plenty. Anybody, if somebody has a life of the mind, they are still more than likely to also have children yes. just because of demographic trends. So we should it is, make that it is It is absolutely true. And then lots of those people who have children don't really enjoy it as we're discovering. Anyway, <laughs> in terms of my family upbringing, my childhood was really quite idyllic. I grew up from age one to eight or nine in a very rural, rustic setting. It was a tiny village on the east coast of England um, on a river, one store, just miles of fields and hedgerows. Um, and it was a very sort of idyllic nature-based childhood where I was given a huge amount of freedom to sort of be outdoors and just kind of have my own little fantasy world to play in. But, you know, my parents separated when I was one and lived apart from when I was one. So I never I never knew having two parents. And beyond that, and this wasn't something I'd really paid too much mind to until I gave myself permission with this book to really dive into it. My parents were both sort of estranged from their parents. So I didn't really ever have any kind of a meaningful relationship with any of my grandparents. My mother's mother had actually died when she was very young. Um, And then beyond that, you know, my dad's sister moved to California when she was 20, so he didn't have a relationship with her. My mother wasn't close to her siblings and our kind of hangouts with our cousins were very sort of fraught and just felt odd and off. And so family, there there wasn't really ever, there wasn't what felt like a sort of a nucleus of cozy, loving care, which is what I think a lot of people think of when they think of family. They think of this sort of warm hearth that we gather around to comfort and support and nourish each other. Didn't have that, you know? My mother did her absolute best to create that between myself, my brother, and her, like our little kind of triad. Um, But she, as as a single parent, was absolutely stretched to beyond her capacity in terms of, you know, really, really sort of giving us the mothering that she really wanted to. So yeah, my, my experience of family, and I think this Megan, having read some of your writing on family is something you can possibly relate to. Wasn't very similar. Wasn't yes. at all traditional. Cozy is not the word I would use to describe it. And so it makes sense to me that when I, when people would say to me, pretty much as soon as I married my husband when I was twenty-seven, so when are you starting a family? I would sort of recoil from the idea. That's not something I don't. No, that's I don't necessarily want that. You know. So I do think that obviously played a role, even though, yeah, I just always had, um, I don't know, I just always had other, other interests and other things I wanted to do with my life. Yeah. I did get married. I was actually, I think, the first in my friend group, group to get married, even though 27 is fairly late still. And I've been with my husband for 24 years and counting. <laughs> Not these days, but 24 years ago, it was quite late, <laughs> I suppose. 
So yeah, other factors. I don't know if there are other other major factors. I think that, that probably is the, the main reason for me. And I think that is one of the reasons I wanted to write this book because I don't think that's necessarily acknowledged uh, enough, you know? I have to say, I never thought of that because, yeah, my uh, parents were not, I don't want to say estranged, but all but estranged from mm. their own families of mm. origin, and, you know, very much wanting to set themselves apart. And, but yeah, my mother made a big deal of trying to recreate a family space and she liked sort of the trappings of coziness of family life. But yeah, I, God, I have to say, I never really put this together because there was nothing sort of overtly terrible in our family. I don't think there was any like trauma of any Mm. sort of legible sort, but so, but did your parents express surprise that you felt this way? No, (laughs) which is telling in and of itself, you know, um, some slight disappointment on my mother's part, just because she is a really mumsy mum. Like she would have loved to be a grandmother. She is my, my brother actually has a son. So she's, um, she is a grandmother. She got, she got a nephew from my brother. You um, got a nephew. You mean you have a nephew. She I got have a, a nephew. Sorry. She got a grandson. Yes, exactly. See, I don't even know the terminology for family. <laughs> <laughs> That's how not a family person I am. <laughs> no, my mom, she expressed some mild sadness, but it was never questioned why. My dad in his sort of sentimental way told me once, oh, you know, if you don't have children, you'll never know what real love is. I mean, oh, oh it's a heavy one. But um, <laughs> yeah, especially coming from somebody who, who was only really there part-time as a father in a, in a very loving way, but um, definitely not a dedicated kind of, you know, family man himself. So yeah, I did it. And I, I think that's, I sort of count that weirdly as a privilege because I know a lot of people who don't want to have children or are ambivalent about becoming parents get a lot of pressure from family. Totally. And I'm very grateful not to have experienced that. Yes. Yeah. I I share that feeling. I think my mother, I mean, my mother died when I was just, just when I was first married. So it didn't really come up in an acute way, but I mean, my father would always say like, you know, he, he would say, I, I should never have had children. He would have said that he himself should never have had children just because of his own temperament and his interests and his values. And it was always totally clear that he wasn't saying, I don't want you guys. He was mm. saying, you know, he's like, I'm glad I have you guys, of course. Mm. And I wouldn't do it any other way, but I'm also a person who probably should not have had this kind of mm, life. And mm. I always felt that was incredibly honest and I really respected and appreciated that he was able to say that. Yeah. And no doubt that inculcated some of your own pragmatism and, you know, <laughs> distrust of sentimentality. <laughs> I remember actually one time I said to my father, like, what would you do if I had a, a kid? I mean, and, you know, I was like in my thirties at this point, you know, <laughs> this was not like, I was not a teenager asking this. And he was like, well, I mean, I, I guess I'd get used to it eventually. <laughs> wow. <laughs> 
Wow. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> but that, okay. But you got married when you were 27. So that's yes. like still a time where people probably could have said, oh, she could change her mind easily. Oh, and, and- definitely. Oh, and they did. Yeah, they absolutely did until I got to about 42, 43. And that's when all of that noise died away. And I was able to finally kind of get clear or tune back into my own kind of inner voice on this subject, you know? Yes. So I did. I was, I got, I was questioned a lot. My best friend revealed during the writing of this book that people used to come up to her and say, why doesn't Ruby want kids? Do you think she'll change her mind? <laughs> you know, they would, didn't feel like they could say it to my face. But yeah, I mean, I had a conversation. My, my dad similarly is for all of his sort of sentimentality, he is also very much a realist and always spoke to me, quote unquote, like I was a grown up. And I appreciate that. And also I think that it gave me a real sort of, I never felt like I had any kind of, lived under any kind of illusions about how life is or how the world is, even as a child, you know? I remember actually, maybe it was the same episode where you had that conversation with Sarah about antinatalism ultimately. And she read you that beautiful, but also quite sentimental poem about holding back, shielding our children from the horrors of the world, which beautiful and kind of cruel. I mean, honestly, I'll walk past a playground with children playing sometimes and look and just feel my heart break the loss of innocence that is around the corner. It's just... Well, I go past the playground and I see the parents just kind of milling around and I feel like they're in jail. (gasps) Totally. The thought of reliving school school years... Was just, I, even as a child though, people, I'd hear people talk about, oh, enjoy it. School years are the best years of your life. And I was like, seriously, this is no. as good as it gets. No, right. please be, See, please but that's no. the thing too, is people say to me, okay, the problem is that you're still relating to the child. So I'll pass a playground and I'll see the children and I'll think, oh God, I'm so glad I'm not there anymore. And I wouldn't want to be a parent because I wouldn't have want to have to relive that in any way. And they say, well, you're getting this wrong because you're still embodying the experience of the Mm. child you need Mm. to like relate to the adult so this is like some sort of basic right of maturity that I have not yet like accepted but yeah ugh. so interesting that I guess that is there's this there's this idea that emotional maturity is about being able to hold a horror and to not inflict that onto other people around you just being able to hold the horror and to not you know, bleed that onto the people around you and therefore save them from experiencing that same horror. And I do think that's a hallmark of of good parenting or suitability for parenting. And maybe I wouldn't be able to do that. Maybe I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to be anything but brutally honest with my children about how horrible the world can be, you know, <laughs> and then I'd risk damaging them that way. I don't know. Oh, hold the horror and not inflict it. So I mean, because that's what that poem, that Maggie Smith poem is about. Like there's all these terrible things in the world and you still have to, it's like having a child is you're, you're going along with the kind of uh, fairy tale of a safe world. The drunken lie, as Tanabisi Coates puts it. (laughs) The drunken lie. Yeah. And maybe, but that is, maybe it's a healthy coping strategy Mm -hmm. just for any human being mm. too. You could look at it that way. Well, I've been thinking this, so, so you came on my Women Without Kids podcast and we were talking about why motherhood in particular is so sentimentalized, so romanticized. And I think that sentimentality is a coping mechanism to shield ourselves from you know the hardest parts of human suffering. But I was having this conversation with someone else this week. You know, 
I think that for so long, while options for women outside of becoming mothers were so limited or without outside of mother being the kind of the role that validated them as women, we sort of had to develop this sentimentality around motherhood because there was no option. There was no option but to focus on the beautiful and the good of motherhood. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I want to ask you too, and because I just, I feel like listeners are going to wonder about this. Was your husband always on the same page about this? Yes, always. So I, um, I became pregnant whilst fitted with an IUD after he and I had been together for a little less than six months. I was 23. I had just graduated and I knew pretty much instantaneously that I would have an abortion. I lived in England. The service was free, no questions asked, readily available. And yeah, he immediately was also on the same page as me. And he has shared with me since that, and he was, I think, 25 or 26 at the time, becoming a father had never entered his consciousness before that point. (laughs) So yes, he has always been very much on the same page with me. And, you know, as I write in the book, there have been points where I've almost managed to talk myself into, but wait, I'll be missing out on this hugely important part of being a human. Maybe we should just do it and see what happens. And he sort of came on those, he got sort of swept up in those almost, almost what if journeys with me as well. But subsequently and not infrequently, something will happen in in our lives and we will look at each other and be like, thank goodness we don't have kids, (laughs) you know? Because I just think that both of us, both of us have a low tolerance for stress. We're both pretty sensitive, kind of neurotic people, you know, as many writers are. And um, we both have a low tolerance for stress as a result. And I think that adding children into the mix in our household would, it just wouldn't work. (laughs) <laughs> this is reminding me of Idiocracy. Do you know that movie? Um, no. The, uh, oh my gosh, this came out maybe like almost 20 years ago, probably now. It takes place in the future. It's this, it's this like comedy, sort of silly comedy dystopian movie. And it's the premise is that only the low IQ people have reproduced. And because the smart people were like too smart to to do it. And so you see these people saying like, well, it's just not the right time for us because the stock market is just not performing. And they keep, you know, they, they show them like, oh, five years later, they put it off again and they put it off again. And that's the kind of thing. Well, we're both oh just God. sort of neurotic, so we shouldn't oh do it. God. Like, and as if this has stopped anybody else. <laughs> right. 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 So, <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Well, I have been thinking, like going back to the point about, you know, the fact that so many more women are now emboldened to share the not so great parts of motherhood. Like it's almost too much information, you know? Yeah. I think a degree of, a degree of kind of ignorant bliss when embarking on the path of parenthood probably is necessary. Oh, absolutely. I'm not saying stupid. There's a difference between that and stupidity, obviously, but just kind of, you know, whether it's willfully or not sort of put all that to the side and it'll be great, you know? Yes. I've, I have a hard time with that kind of mentality. Well, and this reminds me of something that I've observed. So in talking about this subject, I would say, not, if not nine times out of 10, eight times out of 10, the kind of 
when I get a response like, oh, I just didn't know love until I had children. It's just changed my life utterly. I'm so sad for you. You don't oh, know God. what you're missing. Oh God. It comes from a man. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. It hmm. comes from somebody. Fatherhood utterly changed me. Sometimes it goes like I was a broken person before and now it's like I just, you know, I can't believe I ever thought of not having this life. And so I don't I want to be careful here because everybody's different, but I feel like I hear that more from men mm. because <laughs> they're not actually having their lives utterly upended and irrevocably changed because of this. I'm not saying their lives aren't upended and changed. They are. But like, you know, fathers on balance, their salaries go up when they become fathers. Their earning potential goes up. They, it's just, there are all kinds of sort of values. I, I feel like that their kind of social value it goes up in a way that women's, I mean, depending on how you define social value, their, their economic value certainly goes up. Like women's salaries go down when they have children because the income, the wage gap is a is a motherhood penalty, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I've noticed that women, even women who are mothers, tend to be much more receptive to people like you and me when we talk about this. They say, yeah, I get it. Like I've had mothers say, you know what? Before I became a mother, I would have thought you were crazy and selfish. But now that I do have children, I see. <laughs> I see what you're saying. And I can tell you how hard this is and that it, I would, I do understand now why people wouldn't do this. But the sentimentality thing tends to come more from men. Hmm. Well, a more hardline feminist than me might say, they're just trying to put you in the woman box, Megan. They're just uncomfortable with you being out there. Some of them. Untethered yeah. to the stove. Yeah. Maybe on a subconscious level. And I don't, I'm not necessarily saying that's what's going on, but that's that would be one reading, I suppose. Another might be that maybe what these men are enjoying is being a nurturer. Maybe they're being having permission to be feminized slightly and are actually enjoying that. You know, they can be sort of, yeah, again, quote unquote, feminized in the role of father because they're allowed to express their nurturing kind of vulnerabilities, I suppose. And that maybe feels enriching. And because it, and this also speaks to just how narrow men's roles are, right? Like I Mm -hmm. think they, the, the lane is narrower for them, Mm -hmm. especially in the West women. There are a lot of ways to be a woman in society and, and get applauded for it. So I actually put out a tweet fairly recently where I said something like, who is more quote unquote judged by society? Women who don't have children or men who don't have children, something like that. And people were like, how can you even ask that? That's of course it's mothers. Of course it's, of course it's women. And yeah, probably. But I do think there's this phenomenon where if a man says, I don't want to have kids, especially if he's not partnered, right? Okay. So if, like you're not, if you're a single guy and you say, I don't want to have kids, I want my freedom. You're going to get accused of being a Peter Pan. You're shirking responsibility. You you won't grow up. You're selfish. The female version of that, at least in some circles, is you go, girl. Yes. Yes. And this is part of, you know, part of what second wave feminism did was allow women to be more like men. And that was kind of necessary. If we wanted gender equality, well, men have got access to all the goodies, so women have to be able to be more like men. And women being allowed not to be mothers within that construct was you know, a, a part piece and a part of that. But what we haven't really seen is the rebalancing on the other side where men get to be more quote unquote like women 
you know, and not be seen as losers, vulnerable, weak, which also just shows vulnerable, weak, needy. These are qualities that we ascribe to the feminine. And it just shows to the extent, I think, to the fact that we still are in a patriarchy. I mean, I, when I when I sat down to write this book, I was like, right, I'm not going to use the word patriarchy. <laughs> and then it's like on every other page. But anyway, <laughs> but I think, yeah, it really shines a light on the, the extent to which we still exalt masculinity, whether it's exhibited in men or women under patriarchy, you know, and how femininity, motherhood being the ultimate expression of the feminine gender is um, still subjugated. Right. So what kinds of responses have you gotten to the book? First of all, was it hard to sell? Did you have an easier time than I did uh, all those years ago trying to convince publishers that there was a market for this? It was really hard to sell. It was really hard to sell. Wow. Partly because... My previous book, Sober Curious, had made kind of a big splash and a lot of people were like, she's so, she's Ruby Sober Curious, you know, that's who her audience is. And I don't know if that's got worse for authors in the kind of social media age, you kind of develop an audience on a certain topic and then if you want to write about something else, well, who cares, you know? But yeah, I did hear as well, books in this category typically haven't performed well. But your book was a New York Times bestseller. Yeah, and it actually was a bestseller on the childcare and parenting Amazing. So there you go. (laughs) Good for you. No, I only had had one publisher who was interested, actually. And in fact, the editor I met with there is a mother and expressly said to me, can you also see if you can speak to moms with this book? My immediate reaction was... Jesus, aren't there enough books for moms? (laughs) But then I softened and listened to what she was saying, which was, as a mother, I actually really want to better understand why I sometimes find this so difficult, why I sometimes don't enjoy being a mother. Um, I want to remember and find ways to stay connected to the woman I am without my kids, you know? So all of that was woven into the book as well. And in fact, I've had, in terms of responses from kind of early readers and people who are just interested in the subject, I would say equal numbers of mothers to women without kids are interested in reading the book, interested in wanting to speak to me about the book, which is very gratifying actually, because again, and something else I sort of write about is that I just really, um, this whole idea of what I termed the mommy binary, you know, the mums versus the non-mums just feels really unhealthy and toxic to me. And so if this can, if this book can help to um, foster good relations between mothers and non-mothers, then great. You know, that's another goal in a way. Yeah, I mean, I, to me, it goes hand in hand. Like the the non-parents and the parents should be partners in this Absolutely. because again, it's like I don't know what greater respect I could pay to a parent than to say, I understand how how monumental this task is. And I know myself well enough not to do it. That that to me makes makes perfect sense. I mean, my the reason I did my project was because I was so frustrated with the framing, which frankly was coming from a lot of the, you know, quote unquote, child-free people themselves. Like that, you know, oh, it, it was easier to say oh, I'm just too uh, selfish or I want to go on vacations or I want to wear fancy shoes. It, it Somehow it was easier to say that than to say, well, you know what? I've thought about this a lot and it's just not for me. Like that's what I always found amazing. Yes. And even the term child-free, I'm curious how you <laughs> feel about that because I <laughs> I have denounced it publicly and, yes. uh, and the child-free people who used to 
you know, they, I was like their darling and now they don't like me anymore, but I just, I don't, you know, it sounds like gluten-free or something. <laughs> to me, it's, to me, I, I've never, I've never gravitated towards it because it sounds like carefree. And as described earlier, I kind of care too much, which is one of the reasons I don't <laughs> have yes, children, right? Exactly. I kind of give too many fucks. Yeah. And that's quite a heavy load to bear mentally most days. Anyway. Yeah. So I have, I do sometimes use the term child-free for ease, for, for ease of communication. Exactly. There, we you haven't know? figured out something better. It's no, true. we haven't. Um, but yeah, I mean, I write, I think in the introduction, somebody asked me this this week as well, you know, this is not a book about how to live a, a fabulous child-free life because I too am really rankled <laughs> by that. The idea that people aren't having children because they just want to spend all their money on like shoes, you know? I mean, yes, I like nice shoes, but my point. And I know a lot of mothers who have great shoes too, by the way. It's, you're not, you don't have to be literally barefoot and you pregnant. Don't have to, it's right? not an either or <laughs> right. with shoes. But um, I kind of am like, a fabulous life should be available. I shouldn't have to opt out of motherhood to have a fabulous life. M mothers should be able to have a fabulous life. And the fact that they don't, again, shines a light on how unsupported mothers are and how undervalued the role of child rearing, which more often than not, disproportionately falls to mothers is. And that's another big message of the book. It's like, we need to make it, we need to make it as okay to have all the children that you want and feel fully supported and like you can have a fabulous child full life <laughs> as we need to norm normalize not having children if that's not what you want for yourself, you know? Right. Well, motherhood is economically undervalued and Absolutely. perhaps socially overvalued. Yes. And that, again, I think the social, the social overvaluing of motherhood is a sort of a compensation for the economic undervaluing of motherhood. Yes. Yes. Very, very well. Put. You know, the whole kind of, oh, cupcakes for Mother's Day, pat on the back. You're doing a great job. Thanks. But we're still not going to give you any paid parental leave. Right. You know, it's just bullshit. Yeah. The other thing I w would always bring up to people is that I think it's really important for children to grow up in communities where they see that not every adult is a parent, right? Like I think, especially if you grow up in a suburb or something like that, you know, every single adult in your midst is just somebody's mom or dad. And I, I think it's really important for children to see that there's a lot of ways to be a responsible caring adults. Definitely. And it's just, it, it does take a village. I mean, that's the thing. It sounds so cheesy, but I think that there's an incredible, really important roles for, for childless people in the lives of children and families. And like, it doesn't mean that, you know, we're not, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that we're just like allergic to, to all children. Absolutely. I, you know, one of the things, sorry, I keep, I keep mentioning my book, but I just think it's germane here. I mean, yeah. I, and one of the things actually, and I, what I, one of the things I loved about your book was that because it's coming out in 2023 and not 2015, I think that it, it shows that we've moved past to this kind of mandatory apology. Like one of the things in my book was that a lot of the writers were bending over backwards to make clear that they, they loved children or that they were very involved with their nieces and nephews or whatever it was. And there was this like kind of baseline apology that I, unfortunately, I think it was necessary for the time. And people would ask me about this and I would say, you know, maybe in seven years, we won't need to have that kind of thing, but I still think that there's so much resistance and there's so much assumption that people who 
choose not to have children actually just hate children mm. that we need to make that clear. But I think that you've shown that it's we've transcended that now. I think so. I still hear that quite frequently. Um, and it does always have that hint Regardless, I'm not in the heads of the people who utter it, but it does sometimes have the feeling tone of an apology or an amends making or a caveat, you know, because it does. If I was to say to you, for example, I just don't like being around children, I can even feel the the, the cringy shame of uttering that. But honestly, <laughs> I have said that, by it's the, the way. Truth I, for me. Uh, it's, it's kind of the truth for me, too. And it's it's not because I don't like children. It's because I just I feel so uncomfortable and inept myself around children. Okay. Well, people you know? will say, okay, this is the American way anyway. They'll say, well, that means you need to work through that. Oh, yeah. Right. Maybe I'm working on it. And if I'd started working on it in my twenties, who knows, maybe I would have reached my mid to late thirties better equipped to, co- to contemplate becoming a parent. But I didn't start doing that work until my late thirties, early forties. So I'm late to it. And yes, I, yeah, I've, there are, there are sort of various little theories that I unpack around why it is I feel so uncomfortable around small children. Well, yes, it probably does have something to do with it. Bringing up the feeling tone of my own childhood. Yes. Okay. That explains it, but I don't necessarily feel the need to overcome it. Exactly. Right. People will say, well, why do you feel this way? And I said, it's, or they say, well, don't you think it's just probably because the way you were raised? And I say, yeah, it (laughs) is. And, (laughs) and uh, let's move on. Like not every single thing needs to be worked to overcome. Well, what do you think about people who say, well, I don't like kids either, but I love my own kids. Other people's kids are terrible, but I love my own kids. I hear that a lot. Um, I, I can, Maybe I can believe it to an extent. I mean, you probably do feel something for your own children. That's just my, my parents said that stuff words. all the time. Right. My parents hated other kids. They <laughs> okay. and they made no bones about that. Oh, my mom loved other kids. Like, oh, just loves, loves, loves kids, babies, children, loves them. And you know, I think that on some level, me not has felt kind of rejection to her, a rejection of her in a way. And I'm like, yeah, I can, I can kind of understand it. I could imagine it does feel slightly narcissistic though, doesn't it? Do you love your kids because they look like you? <laughs> oh. You know? <laughs> I think some people hate their kids because they look like them. Right. Oh, God. They, they want their kids to be more beautiful or they don't no. like it if their child is more beautiful. It's so, there's so it's much so going complex. on. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh. Hmm. Well, so before we wrap up this part of the conversation, you know, I, this, you don't want to get into the position where people are like, well, what are we supposed to do about this? Like, you know, the, the fact is that it, it does seem that the population is not, we're, we're not at uh, uh re, what do they call that? Replenishment. Replen- replenishment. <laughs> sounds so, sounds so agricultural, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, there are going to be a lot of people growing old alone and dying alone, you and me included. And actually, maybe we should just start here. Like, do you think about your old age and your death and the fact that you won't have kids to either show up or at least put you in a home? Mm. Uh, I think about it all the time. All the time. Yeah. I think I started thinking about it in earnest after I turned 40. I think that's kind of maybe even a biological thing that happens. I don't know. <laughs> I think it's like to contemplate your death at midlife. But um, yes, I do think about it all the time. And I err on the side of optimism, which is that we will 
have to apply all of our human ingenuity into to coming up with solutions, um, technological, social, economic solutions that support what are termed kinless elders. I think I sent you a link, actually, there's an article in the New York Times that looked at this, this issue, I'll say issue, not problem, but the issue of more and more people aging without kin. Yes, I do think about it and I don't have answers apart from the fact I'm very proud of myself. I finally started my solo 401k this year. <laughs> finally in a position to start doing that. But um, yeah, I mean, whew, what are you going to do? I, like on my on my most pragmatic days, I look to the conversations that are kind of bubbling around assisted suicide, you know, and thinking about, I think it was my, I was talking about this with my brother. I read Lionel Shriver's book on that. Um, oh, should we stay or so should we go? Good. Yeah. It's she came so on and talked good. about it. She did. It's a, it's a novel, but yes, it's a novel. Yes. But it's yeah. very inventive, but also incredibly smart and, and thought provoking. Um, I was talking to my brother about it and I think he said there was an, he once watched an episode of Star Trek where they found a planet where everybody, when they were born, they were issued a death date. So everybody from the moment they were born knew the date oh. that they were going to die. Wait, this was a Star Trek? This, this sounds a like Star a Black Trek Mirror. Episode. I know. Okay. <laughs> knew the date that they were going to die. And so they lived with no fear of death. They also knew that their death would be, you know, managed, painless, managed, passing on. And that this society has sort of, I don't know, been just liberated from so much of their existential angst as a result. <laughs> So on my most, like I said, sort of rational days, I might sort of think about that as a solution. But, oh, God, obviously it's such an incredibly difficult subject, but one that will need to, it will to have emerge. a lot more conversation. Oh. It will emerge. It's emerging. I think know? this is the next big civil rights issue is yeah, right. um, dignity and death. Yes. And, oh, I think about assisted suicide all the time. Not even assisted, just, you know. <gasps> Uh, you I did know, actually well, after reading Lionel Shriver's book, I did Google euthanasia. No, and I don't want to talk lightly about this because I know no, it's, it upsets know. people, and I don't mean to be glib about it. But um, I actually, if anybody is listening to this, I really want to do more episodes of this podcast about like medical aid and dying. The situation in Canada is very alarming, from what I understand. But if anybody, I, I've been trying to find guests actually who will talk about this in a productive and and a nuanced way. I so, would love to listen to that. It's not something I've really kind of. No, it's you know, hard to find people to talk about it. Research wise, but it's very interesting because, and, and especially I think for people who don't have children. And see, people are going to go really dark. They're going to be like, this is exactly why you have children. Like, have children. Like, look at these broads. They're sitting around here <laughs> I know. talking about their shoes and how they're going to kill themselves. <laughs> God, sorry, don't make me laugh at this point in the conversation. Well, as I make the point in the book, that equation comes with no guarantees. That's right. I think I registered, to, I, re I was researching this this week for an article. I think 60% of people in elder in assisted living receive no visitors, you know? Wow. This is assuming that most of them have children. Yeah. Then there's, your children could die before you. Your children could need financial assistance until you're well into your 70s or 80s. There's just, there's no, there's no guarantee except perhaps some resentment on behalf of the child if you were specifically brought into the world so that you could be their nursemaid um, further down the line. So yeah, I just, I don't like that argument. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like human civilization has just gotten totally over its skis. 
there's just so many things that we're kind of not equipped to deal with. Right. Uh, as, and as I think this is evidenced by kind are. of, this is just evidenced by how much unrest there is currently, you know, in the discourse. Like, there's just, we're sort of, I, I feel like we're evolving as a species kind of in real time, you know? Um, maybe yes. we have been for the past, at least since the Industrial Revolution. And that's uncomfortable and confusing. And but we haven't caught yeah. up. Like, we're we not, like, up. the society, we're not really equipped. Well, I mean, this is not a revelation. Jonathan Haidt talked about this. We're not, we are, our brains are literally not equipped to take in the kind of information overload that is brought forth on a minute-by-minute right. basis. But maybe the digital natives will be. Maybe well, all the he kids says growing that up on still TikTok not. will be. Right. Maybe, maybe. And but they're like a lot of them are not wanting to have kids. Are you um right. yeah, before are you finding just uh and then we'll we'll wrap this up, but like are you finding that younger people are saying, I really don't want to do this, like more so than Gen Xers? The statistics would show that is the case. As a journalist, I I know that you can if you you can find statistics to back up pretty much any argument you want to make yes. if you Google for well, long enough. The perks. <laughs> Yeah. But um, yeah, you know, seven out of ten Gen Zs would rather have a pet than be a parent. I okay, but how old are they? Like, that's right? The they're probably yeah, exactly. They could be in their teens. Yeah, yeah. No one wants to be a parent when they're a teenager. Although some, I don't know. My mom said she knew she wanted to be a mother from age nine, ten. She wanted to have six kids. That was what she wanted for her life, you know. But so yeah, there's there's that. I spoke to a mom this week who was saying that her two teenage daughters have told her outright, we're not having children. You've made it look too hard. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Yes. Younger, chil- younger, younger children, younger people are um, even more ambivalent, let's say. And I do think that climate is playing a big role in that. People who know that, you know, 2050, this kind of mythical date when it's all going to tip into continual kind of catastrophic climate events, that's, that's not that far off for, for people being born now. No. So I think that's absolutely playing a massive factor in Gen Z really hardcore questioning. Is this something I, I want to do? Let alone the econ- you know, economy, politics, all the other things that are playing into right, it. Well, that makes me glad to be old. That's one <gasps> of those things that I feel like I got it in just, oh my God. just under the are we wire. Like, are we like boomers like, yeah, fuck it. Let's just party now. We're going to be yeah, well, they before it gets really, really bad. I know. We have to hang in a little longer, but <laughs> yeah, not quite as long. Well, no. Ruby, thank you so much. I'm going to keep you over time for a totally different uh, subject. <laughs> but um, in the meantime, thank you so much for this book, Women Without Kids, The Revolutionary Rise of an Unsung Sisterhood. Uh, thank you for writing this book and thank you for speaking with me. Well, thanks for being an early inspiration with Selfish Shallow. That was a real turning point for me. Thanks. That was my conversation with Ruby Warrington. She is the author of Women Without Kids, which is publishing this week. If you're hearing this before March 28th, you can order the book, pre-order the book, that is, and that gets you a free book club guide plus a chance to win one of 10 limited edition tote bags. We didn't even talk about the tote bags, by the way. 
but they are something to behold. So if you are hearing this before the pub date of March 28th, go to rubywarrington.com, go to books, go to Women Without Kids, and uh, get in on all the goodies. Ruby, in addition to writing this book, is the creator of the term Sober Curious. She has written other books, Material Girl, Mystical World, The Numinous Astro Deck, The Sober Curious Reset. She's done a lot of other stuff. Stick around for the bonus portion of this conversation. If you're hearing this, actually, you're not a paying subscriber and you're not going to get access to the bonus conversation, but it's really, really good. It's good every week, but it's especially good this week. So go to megandom.substack.com become a paying subscriber at any level and you will get to hear that that's it for now i'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest thanks for listening see you next time Uh